0: Hello, this is Ben Kitchings. This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. This is part six of a deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, otherwise known as Season 1, Episode 6 of the History Voyager's deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast so far. Uh, This has been a very humbling experience for me in terms of the response and also the size of the audience. Something much bigger than I would have thought. Thank you so much for your interest. Today I thought I would resume talking about the Spanish flu because I've noticed some parallels uh, between the 2020 situation and also in 1918. Now, as I've said before, and I'll say it again and again and again, the disease is natural, the pandemic is man-made. It's useful for modern historians to remember that this is, by and large, a pandemic, that is 1918, is a pandemic in which, at the time, a lot of the healthcare workers... uh, dealing with it wouldn't have called it that they wouldn't have called it a pandemic for that reason it's it's hard for us to know truly when it started it's also useful for us to remember that in a lot of ways this was a truly transitional phase in i guess modern history um, you still had a lot of the same attitudes From an older generation, but you had the very beginnings of industrialization. So you would have had people that, you know, they would have seen everything as new. You know, they would have seen this disease itself as, you know, it would have been new to them. Like the idea that institutions, you know, colleges, would be a loci of infection, or prisons were a loci of infections. To us, that seems totally commonsensical. To them, that there was a, a new revelation. Also, I think that the idea that, you know, they, they were totally baffled by the idea of a communicable disease being at all communicable Uh, between what they would have thought of as as people, as discreet peoples, like they simply did not believe that um, basically those of Latin heritage could give people of Nordic heritage uh, the flu, you know at least a lot of the doctors at the time and again this is something that we're going to see because, you know, health authorities, particularly like in San Quentin Prison, which was one of the few uh, multiracial situations in America, was experiencing the flu. And also, they were noticing that the flu was communicable between between races, and they really didn't know what to think of that. You know, you know this was a... Uh, you know, a challenge to long-held beliefs essentially. And also, you know, like a you know, like I've said, they really, you know, there was a whole lot of talk about one of the reasons that the Spanish flu deaths were so numerous was because country boys, we're heading into Europe, and these country boys did not have the, the, uh, the immune system that the city kids would have. And the city kids had a better immune system, and therefore were better able to, you know, to handle the flu. And one thing that perplexes modern people, modern virologists, is that the flu, H1N1 today, uh, simply is not as deadly as the H1N1 was in 1918. But, you know, needless to say, contemporary observers in Europe at the time and in America saw the the deaths among rural people as though, well, the rural person doesn't have to have as good a, you know, as good of an immune system as, say, the urban person. So right there you can see... Um, kind of the bias, the anti-urban bias on both sides of the Atlantic uh, play out among the elites. There's been quite a lot of research done over the years that has shown that you cannot truly distinguish Spanish flu deaths from World War One deaths and you cannot truly distinguish you know institutional deaths, that is, people basically housed together, or in family groups, or even in urban city groups, uh, from Spanish flu deaths. That is to say that the Spanish flu traveled over the new world of, um, you know, the new world of, I guess, worldwide travel, But once it got to a place, it went crazy in apartment buildings and in sort of farmhouses that had lots of people or prisons, you know, it just went absolutely crazy. Now in 2020, in dealing with the COVID-19 situation, you know, we, we hear a lot of shelter in place. Well... You know, the the folks in 1918 might not have been told the shelter-in-place per se, or they might not have had a scientific reason beyond that other than just common sense or perhaps even just hope, but a lot of them chose to do that. And one of the things that immediately strikes me as a difference between 1918 and today is that in 1918, you still had the family farm as the primary, you know, mode of, of food production, where today you don't really have that. So, you know, they were able to, to live on their farm and to essentially isolate in a family unit, you know, much greater than, than we would be today. Now, there was a man named Leo Stanley who was the prison doctor at San Quentin Prison, who noticed the, I guess, that 9% of patients at his prison would appear to get better and then, you know, come down with it again. Some virologists call this what we call a viral holiday. Now, if you'll remember, Harry Underdown had this same sort of situation. Now, you'll also... Be keen to know that he also, that is Dr. Stanley, w- noticed that, first off, he noticed that a lot more people had this flu than were previously thought to have had it. And some of this was because, you know, including him, but some of this was because the authorities were essentially what we would today consider racist, and they just thought people of a certain race were. You know, naturally inclined or disinclined to work. And he would notice like a lot of people were laying about and really not doing anything. And, you know, he at first attributed this to the racist attitudes of the day, but then he realized, oh no, they're sick with the flu. The other thing he noticed was that it was, you know, and again, this sounds kind of commonsensical to us today, but he noticed that how communicable this disease was. Like, you could put people in a, basically in a tight space, and they would get it essentially from droplets, uh, from people's, basically, bodily fluid from their spit, you know, from a single drop. And he also noticed that people were turning blue from lack of oxygen. And so he wrote this up and sent it around, and then eventually, you know, it got to other people, and they started noticing sort of the same thing. Now, previously, it had been noted by other observers of this that there was almost like a weekly, um, I guess you'd say, like a weekly, you know, schedule to the flu. Like you would get it on a Tuesday or Wednesday, or that people would would seem more contagious on Tuesday or Wednesday. And that had baffled outside observers. And what Dr. Stanley had noticed was that, well, there's a moving moving picture show, as he called it, or I guess we would call it movies. There was a moving picture show on, like, Sunday. And so what was happening was people would congregate around and, and, you know, spread the virus or the flu. And they would come, come down by Tuesday or Wednesday, with symptoms of the flu. Chief among the more baffling uh, situations with the flu was the situation in the San Quentin prison. Many advisors or outsiders had been brought in to try and understand why people were dropping dead. The person that was the most successful with studying this flu was a fellow named Leo Stanley but you have to remember that he wasn't really working with modern virological studies or even with modern more racially inclusive attitudes and he had to fight through some of his own attitudes to even get through and understand why people were dying of the flu and again this was baffling to people because they noticed that institutions all over the place, orphanages, prisons, army camps, were major loci of infection. And it was also baffling the people because, you know, they'd never really thought about... It's kind of like today with the Internet. Like, you know, you, you set up the Internet, and then as the Internet goes along... You know, as time with the internet goes along, you you see, well, Facebook is really changing society, and, and Twitter is really changing society. It's kind of like that with the Industrial Revolution. You know, these people, they, they had the goodies, they had the trains, they had the steamboats and things like that, and the steam engines, but they hadn't really had to think about before the, you know, the pace with which you could... Take an infected person, and you could take this person and then transplant them and their infection basically across a continent at pretty well, pretty good speed. And now, here's another thing that I think we need to talk about about the flu in 1918 that we're talking about a flu that. Now, this is kind of inside baseball for historians, if you will. But we're talking about a flu in history. And the records of this flu that we have are from military records and prison records and basically doctors who were, you know, aware enough to notate this stuff down. There was, by the, I guess, the fall, I mean, the uh, spring and summer, and into the fall of 18, that is 1918, there was an, another strain of the flu that was existing, or that was rumored to exist. And this rumor, it persists in time because people who weren't necessarily trained as as doctors of the day would be writing it down. And so the records of of this strain of the flu come almost entirely from letters and postcards and even oral histories which have been interpolated you know and here's something that i've said before and i'll say again right now and and that is that virologists that is modern day virologists some of them hesitate to call the 1918 flu a flu per se because it doesn't behave the way h1n1 does today that is h1n1 in 1918 doesn't exactly behave the way h1n1 does today i'll give you an example um h1n1 true enough i've had it twice it'll sap you it'll 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 sap you it'll make you to where you're you're not hungry you know and You know, that that'll feel weird and but it doesn't cause neurological damage. Okay, and right, and the nineteen eighteen variety did. It caused neurological damage and it would choke off oxygen to the brain to such a degree that a lot of the victims of the nineteen eighteen flu would actually their brain was suffocating. And Another thing was there would be these sudden onsets of the flu in 1918 where people would just die. Like they would get it in the morning and they'd be dead by evening. And so, okay, so we as historians and educated people, I'm I'm assuming that everybody listening to this podcast is educated, have has to take, you know, these this other rumored version of the flu and really think about it. Yes, it probably happened, but it's interesting that, you know, I had a history professor who who used to say, history is not omniscient. And there's a lot of thought that we need to think about with that. That history is not omniscient. That things occur all the time that are outside of the spotlight of, of history, a spotlight of writing, writing, or even, I guess, literate people, and I'm not saying these people weren't literate, they clearly were, but they didn't go to to writing this down, at least not a clinician. Now, why do I bring that up about the interpolated epidemic? I bring that up because there was, it appears to be, at least to modern historians, a separate strain of the flu, which was existing... Outside of San Quentin, where Dr. Stanley worked, that was working its way through the town. And this strain of the flu was much, much more powerful than anything Dr. Stanley was dealing with. This was the strain where you could come down with it in the evening and then die in the morning, or come down with it in the morning and die in the evening. It did not, you know, uh, follow the course of even the, the normal killer that is the Spanish flu in 1918. Now, both sides of the, the raging war, that is, World War I, both sides thought that this was chemical warfare at the time. And that gets interesting to think about. It also gets interesting to think, when you think of this as a historian, that there were plenty of deaths. And this is why the death total of this flu is interpolated. There are plenty of deaths that weren't even recorded at the time because you had whole streets die of this other strain of the flu, basically in a day. Um, and you had secondary deaths going on. You had, you know, y- you would get it. And you would think, well, I don't want my wife to die of this, so I'm going to kill her. Or I don't want my wife to go on to to poor relief, which essentially was non-existent at the time, and you would kill her. And, you know, this was whispering through the society, and we can read about it in letters and postcards, but it really hasn't received the, I guess, the, you know, the serious weight of modern um, study because, frankly, we, we don't think it's returned. At least that's the wisdom. Now, the important thing to think is, while all that was happening, there was, in fact, a war in in Europe. By the late winter or spring of 1918 it had become apparent to both sides in the war, the Allies as well as the Axis, that there was, people were dying. Now, it's interesting to note, and also important to note, that at the time, both sides had written this up to chemical warfare. But the fact is that we now believe that the flu was working, you know, there was a very virulent strain of, I guess the flu uh, that was working through both sides of it and they were killing each other equally now in the spring of 1918 by March of 1918 the Germans were becoming you know it was becoming clear to the Germans that the Germans were I guess winning the war they had gained you know slightly less than 2,000 square miles of French real estate through fighting their doctors had contained typhoid and other more traditional you know uh, illnesses that one might expect during the war but there was a fever that they were noticing as well as the French. That's interesting for modern researchers to look at this because they were both sort of writing about it but not Communicating with each other, but only through their, you know, to their sides. That the other side is attacking us with this fever that they thought both sides thought was developed by the other side as a weapon of war. And this would lead to a problem that bedevils modern historians is that. They didn't report, neither side reported the full extent of the damage because they didn't want to give up um, how badly they were doing in the fighting because, again, they thought this was a weapon of war. So this gets into why it's an interpolated epidemic because modern researchers, modern historians have to go back and look and say, okay, well, you died of this symptomology, therefore, we're going to decide this is a Spanish flu death. By March of 1918, there was a critical mass of evidence to all involved that there was something going around they could no longer ignore. In Europe, they were calling it the Spanish flu, either because Spain was neutral in the war and was therefore trying to be honest with its flu deaths or because there were French doctors that called it the Spanish flu because they wanted their resort town to be spared the, I guess, reputation of being the breeding ground for the flu. However, the name Spanish flu stuck and so people started referring to it as the spanish flu in camps in britain they it was seen as sudden nurses and doctors would report that they were suddenly inundated with flu deaths and a lot of these deaths were put in quotation marks as though they didn't know quite what to call it but because it was respiratory in nature they they called it the flu other doctors looked at it and, and compared it to a killer flu strain floating, you know, reported in medical journals on both sides of the Atlantic and put it down to the same thing. Either way, the name stuck, and so we historians are basically forced, whether we want to or not, whatever side we happen to be on, I was saying that the Spanish flu or H1N1, you know, was essentially this tsunami of death. Now, it's interesting to note that this was before the Americans entered the war on the side of, of course, the Allies. But the Americans had Spanish flu, you know, in their country in the presumably independently although probably not of Europe at the same time and it was it was bad so you know april 1918 was where the the spanish flu that we think of in our popular imagination really got really got going and that was corresponding with the americans entry on the side of the allies so right now I want to put a pen in the actual uh history part of the story. And I want to take a I guess a wider meta narrative focus. As I keep saying the you know the pandemic is man-made and the disease is natural. So I've begun to wonder um in the research for this why that is like if you look at the black death for example the black death took advantage of the trade routes from asia and if you look at say the spanish flu the, the spanish flu clearly took advantage of great advantage of not just the war but also of the well frankly of the racist attitudes But also, it took advantage of um, industrialization. I wonder if there's a a period of time where there's like this, an older generation that's much more attuned to how things were, and they're still in charge. And I wonder if so... Was the Spanish flu you know because there's a lot of evidence that says the Spanish flu was knocking around Kansas for years before it ever got to Europe there's a whole lot of evidence that France had something akin to the Spanish flu for years before it met up with World War I So I'm wondering if part of what the deal is, is, you know, does the spotlight of history come to certain areas? And it glares, and we see not just the events caused the pandemic, but also our attitudes towards it, sort of heighten awareness for this thing. I mean, obviously, you know, in Kansas, you would have had remote farmsteads dying off, and nobody would have noticed, save for Dr. Milner, you know, and and if a Dr. Milner type had existed, you know, he might not have thought to write it down as like the actual Dr. Milner did but in looking at the the records which we have of the Spanish flu it makes me think it makes me truly wonder if one of the things that we're dealing with when we talk about the Spanish flu is that the Spanish flu happens sort of on a borderline between um, two ways of thinking of the world because clearly one of the main causes of of Spanish flu deaths was simply the simple idea that oh well one race can't give another race a disease which of course pretty much even the most racist among us today would would know that's not the case you know but anyway um Thank you very much for, for choosing to listen to this podcast. There's a zillion of them out there. And thank you for going on this ride with me. There's, there's quite a few of you that, that are. And, and thank you very much. I, I truly mean that. This has been a very humbling experience for me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at BenzCharlie. And, you know, um, you can also, I have, you can listen to this on various podcatchers now. Uh, CastBox, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Podhound is coming around, I, I, I guess. Um, oh, and also Podbean, the, the host. You can also listen on Podbean, how silly of me. Um I did want to talk about uh some covid nineteen type of things. I guess I'll do that at a later date on a separate podcast um again because i I happen to believe that covid nineteen and but more specifically the the changes that covid nineteen will bring to to our modern society are very much worth talking about very much very, very much worth chronicling. I, I truly believe that. In many ways, we're dealing with the Spanish flu playbook today. The The out lesson from the Spanish flu was that you have to basically isolate yourself because as we'll see later, one of the major outbreaks of the Spanish flu occurred when people didn't isolate themselves after the Spanish flu had been so-called contained and it was that other strain of the spanish flu that was truly a large killer but also i i think you know it's in studying this you can't really divorce pandemics from the political element because the political element is partly why the pandemic is happening and that's you know that's the spanish flu or the black death or just really anything any mass sickness the reason the mass sickness is happening is is partly because of the politics of the day and i think that you know it's important to talk about that you know in the in the way that you can't talk about the post-vietnam era politics without talking about vietnam you can't talk about the post-Spanish flu epidemiology without talking about what they learned about through the Spanish flu. I mean, you simply can't do that. Anyway, thank you very much for choosing this podcast. As I say all the time, there's a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very much for listening to mine. Um, this has truly been a very humbling experience. Um Again, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Ben's Charlie. Um, You know, and I'm on a myriad of podcatchers now. I'm on CastBox and Stitcher and, of course, Podbean, the host of the channel. And also um, Podhound. And I'm also in your browser um, on a website. That is the HistoryVoyager.com. Anyway... Thanks a bunch for listening to my podcast, and I'll see you around. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.